It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Eagle podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... Well, dozens of people have been killed in a new wave of anti-government protests in Ethiopia. Several well, after a month of uncertainty, Abiy Ahmed is now set to become the new Prime Minister. Nobel Peace Prize to Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali. We have learned our lessons. But first... Here's what happened in the world this week. On Wednesday, Italy's Senate voted to put far-right leader Matteo Salvini on trial. Salvini is Italy's former interior minister, and he's charged basically with stranding a group of migrants on a boat last summer. For years, many Italians, especially those from far-right political parties, complained that Italy was taking too many migrants fleeing across the Mediterranean, and the rest of the EU nations weren't taking their share. So when an Italian Coast Guard picked up 140 migrants fleeing Libya for Italy last July, Salvini refused to let the migrants disembark for days until he got agreements from other EU nations that they would take some into their own countries. This prompted immediate backlash, and there were fears that the conditions on the boat were really unsanitary, with one toilet being shared among all of the passengers on board. Salvini is defiant, though, saying that he's absolutely calm and proud of what he did. If Salvini is charged in the trial, he could face up to 15 years in prison. In Yemen, the Saudi-backed coalition started court-martial proceedings against its own aircrew. The coalition's oversight wing found that some of its personnel violated international humanitarian law with three of its deadly airstrikes a couple years ago. Yemen has been devastated for years by a conflict that escalated in March 2015. At that time, an Islamic political group called the Houthis led a rebellion against Yemen's president and forced him to flee abroad. Looking at this, Yemen's neighbor, Saudi Arabia, worried that this was actually a move by Iran backing these Houthi rebels. So a Saudi-led coalition entered the fray, and an all-out war erupted. 
About 100,000 people have died in the conflict so far, 12,000 of whom were civilians. Saudi Arabia has been facing criticism for years now for its ruthless campaign against the rebels and the collateral damage to civilians. In August 2018, a strike on a civilian school bus by the Saudi coalition killed 40 schoolchildren. This is one of the attacks the coalition is being court-martialed for. It's always seemed dicey to many that the Saudi-led coalition is basically overseeing itself through its investigative arm, the Joint Incidents Assessments Team, JIAT. But the JIAT is trying to prove with these court-martial proceedings that it's a legitimate oversight group and committed to upholding international law. It's important to note that it is not, as some claim, a blacklist, nor does it qualify any company's activities as illegal. On Wednesday, the UN Human Rights Office accused 100 companies of violating Palestinian human rights by doing business in Israeli settlements in the West Bank. A lot of the companies on the list are huge global enterprises like Airbnb, General Mills, and Motorola. Israel and the Palestinian forces have been fighting over territory for over a century, and probably the hot button of the dispute comes down to a region called the West Bank. The Holy City Jerusalem sits inside that region, although in territory disputes and treaties and whatnot, Jerusalem is generally curtained off as a separate, even more contested section. The West Bank has a lot of Palestinians settled there, but Israel has been gradually setting up more and more of their own settlements. Even though the U.S. has broken with tradition in the past year to condone these settlements, the rest of the international community largely condemns them as a violation of international law. Even though the U.N. outed these companies last week for doing business in illegal settlements, it hasn't actually charged them with breaking international law or recommended any sanctions. For now, it seems like this might be more of a statement that the United Nations doesn't approve of these settlements, even if the U.S. does. Let me, let me take this opportunity to thank the people of New Hampshire for a great victory tonight. The second contest in the U.S. presidential race took place in New Hampshire last week. Just like in Iowa, Senator Bernie Sanders and former Mayor Pete Buttigieg came out neck and neck, but in swapped places this time, with Senator Sanders taking first place with a narrow lead. In Iowa, it was Mayor Buttigieg who came in first, just barely. Bernie is a beloved figure of the far left who embraces the title Democratic Socialist, which in the States is a really controversial alignment. He's credited with moving the Democratic Party as a whole further left in the past few years. Mayor Pete, as he's affectionately called, is a moderate candidate from the Midwest and the youngest at 38. He doesn't have nearly as much political experience as the other candidates, but he's a Rhodes Scholar, a veteran, and speaks eight languages. Bernie won New Hampshire by a landslide back in 2016 when he ran for president. But this time around, the field is a lot more crowded, and fears about the electability of a far-left candidate against Trump have inspired a lot of Democrats to embrace moderates. Moving up to third place in New Hampshire was Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. And then in a distant fourth was Senator Elizabeth Warren, followed by former Vice President Joe Biden. Basically, since his campaign began, Biden has been touting himself as the most electable candidate. But after these preliminary results, it may be hard for the former favorite to make a comeback. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. On Thursday, Ethiopia's parliament passed a law that allows its citizens to be thrown in prison over their Facebook posts. 
The law is supposed to be aimed at curbing hate speech and disinformation in the country. It imposes a fine of up to $3,000 and imprisonment for up to five years for anyone who shares something on social media that incites violence or seems likely to result in public disorder. Lawmakers who voted for the bill say that their country has become a victim of disinformation, and this bill will help balance Ethiopia's diversities. But the United Nations says that this will stifle free speech. International rights groups like Amnesty International say this creates a legal means for the government to silence its opponents. Ethiopia's government has a long, checkered past that includes a lot of flirtation with authoritarianism. But that's not the era that the government is in now. When Western powers around the world started looking at populism with interest and democratic institutions with skepticism, Ethiopia took its first meaningful steps towards democracy since the nation's birth. So while this kind of bill might not have even raised eyebrows in Ethiopia five years ago, it seems totally out of place today. It might seem to onlookers that, like so many countries before it, this last week just shows that Ethiopia's democratic experiment is over before it even began. But that's not the whole story here. The real story is much more complicated and much more interesting. To understand how we got here, to the seeming about face last week, we have to go back to 1991. After 17 years of civil war, the government was about to fall. At the time, the government was a Marxist regime under military rule that ironically called itself the People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, or PDRE. That name was actually just a rebranding. Four years earlier, the government had called itself the Derg. The Derg had overthrown an emperor in 1974 to claim power in the country. And to be clear, I mean an Ethiopian emperor. Except for a very brief period under Mussolini, Ethiopia was never colonized. But pretty much from the day the Soviet-backed Derg took power, it was beset by anti-communist rebel forces all over the region, backed by the United States. Plus, the new government inherited a war with neighboring Eritrea, which had been fighting for its independence since the Ethiopian Empire annexed it more than a decade before. By 1991, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and the Derg, or the PDRE, or whatever they wanted to call themselves, was alone and facing increasingly victorious rebels. In May, the president fled the country. In June, a coalition of rebels entered the capital and overthrew the government. The coalition called itself the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, EPRDF. And it's the same group that rules the country today. It's probably not surprising that the U.S. was pleased with this development that dealt another blow to communism. And they were pretty undisguised in their optimism and excitement for the new government. This is Herman Cole, the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, speaking at a House hearing on June 18th, two weeks after the EPRDF had seized power. We have cautioned the interim administration that future cooperation from the United States depends on their holding to their announced commitment to human rights, democracy, and due process for all. But those commitments did not last long. It soon became clear that the supposed democracy EPRDF was setting up was in fact an authoritarian regime. The Prime Minister, Melisanawi, would rule until his death in 2012. This is him speaking to Al Jazeera's Andrew Simmons in 2010. The opposition argues it would sweep to power if 
the ruling party stopped intimidating and jailing its members. What do you say to that? Well, all attempts to check as to whether these allegations of intimidation are valid or not have come up with the same result. Hot air. Nothing more than that. But there are a lot of people, a lot of organizations, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, have observed that there has been intimidation in the past and indeed there are allegations now that intimidation is taking place. No one, no independent observer has said, I have observed such and such acts of intimidation. No one. All of them report allegations of intimidation and by some magic wand transform these allegations into facts. And one opposition supporter beaten by government militias in front of his home and the Ethiopian authorities say he died of natural causes. I've not heard of this uh, accusation. This must be one of the last fabrications. By 2016, Ethiopians were fed up with their repressive government and anti-government protests were becoming fiercer and fiercer. The government, in its turn, became even more brutal and violent in trying to suppress them. Well, dozens of people have been killed in a new wave of anti-government protests in Ethiopia. Several thousand people gathered in Bahirdar on the northwest on Sunday. Amnesty International says 30 people were killed in the wider Amhara region and another 67 died in violence in Oromia in central western Ethiopia. The government says the protests are illegal. That was Al Jazeera again. In Ethiopia, it's really important to understand the ethnic divisions in the country that underlie so much of this conflict. So the ruling government, the EPRDF, is a coalition of four different political parties that come from four different regions of Ethiopia. You've got the two most populous regions, Oromia, home of the Oromo people, and Amara, home of the Amaras. Each group speaks its own language, and together they make up about 62% of the Ethiopian population. Then there's a hugely diverse group lumped together in a region known as the Southern Nations, which comprise 45 different ethnic groups. The last political party of the coalition comes from Tigray. And even though the Tigrayans only make up about 6% of the population of Ethiopia, it's this last group that had held power since 1991. Their political party is called the Tigray's People Liberation Front. And it was that group that marched into the capital in 1991 and then set up Melis as the life-serving prime minister. The Oromo people especially felt marginalized by the Tigrayan government and resentful since they're by far the largest ethnic group at 34% of the country's population. The anti-government protests of 2016 became so fierce that the government started to realize they would soon be powerless to contain them. It was clear that time was up for the Tigrayan party. If the EPRDF wanted to continue its reign and stave off another civil war, they'd need a change in leadership. Well, after months of uncertainty, Abiy Ahmed is now set to become the new Prime Minister of Ethiopia. The incoming Prime Minister was the chairman of the Oromo People's Democratic Organization. Ethiopia's Oromia region has seen unrest as members of the, of the Oromo claim political and economic marginalization. Abiy Ahmed is the first Oromo Prime Minister in 27 years. He now acts as the chairman of the EPRDF, the Ethiopian ruling party. That was CGTN. Abiy Ahmed's appointment was met with enthusiasm by many Ethiopians. He was young, only 42, he was Oromo, and he had big ideas for how to reform the government. 
the EPRDF was still in power. Again, it's a coalition of four different political parties. The difference was now, rather than the Tigrayan political party having control, it was led by the party from Oromia. Abiy moved quickly to democratize the nation. He freed political prisoners, invited exiled dissidents to return home, and unblocked hundreds of websites and TV channels. The change was so drastic and so quick, it was like looking at a different country. But Abiy didn't stop with domestic policy. Families split either side of the Ethiopian-Eritrean border have been finally able to speak to each other for the first time in decades. The countries have issued a joint statement saying that they are no longer at war. The thaw comes after Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, agreed to abide by borders set in 2002 and paid an historic visit to Eritrea over the weekend. That was France 24. Abiy ended a state of cold war with Eritrea, agreeing to respect the country's sovereignty and opening up diplomatic relations between the two enemies for the first time. In 2019, this move would win him the world's most prestigious accolade. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2019 to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali for his efforts to achieve peace and international cooperation with neighboring Eritrea. But all of this success belied a darker undercurrent. The EPRDF under Melis was without a doubt a repressive regime and a human rights abuser, but it did exercise a huge amount of political and economic stability for most of its nearly 30-year reign. When Abiy stepped in, he set fire to most of the establishment, disintegrating the security forces that had been jailing political opponents and gunning down unarmed protesters. But in doing so, he left the security apparatus in disarray and the government vulnerable. And by breaking off the Tigrayan stranglehold on power, he opened the political landscape and people from all over Ethiopia's over 80 different ethnic groups wanted a piece of the action. First in line were the Amara people, the second biggest ethnic group in Ethiopia. Authorities in Ethiopia have confirmed that the army's chief of staff, General Siari Mekonnen, has been shot dead in the capital, Addis Ababa. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed says he was shot trying to prevent a coup attempt against the administration in Ethiopia's northern Amhara region. The governor of Amhara, Abachu Mekonnen, was killed in the region along with another official. That was SABC. The failed coup last June, which came out of the Amara region, was just the highest profile intercommunal dispute that erupted after Abiy took power. In the time since Abiy took power, over 3 million people have fled their homes due to intercommunal violence. This meant that in 2018, Ethiopia had the largest number of internally displaced people of any country in the world. Even while Abiy's reforms were genuinely democratizing the country, it was also a perfect storm of political chaos. Opposition leaders who had been exiled returned home emboldened and hungry for power. And every level of government, from the party to the security apparatus, down to communication with village leaders, was in disarray because of all the upheaval. Seems like if you're going to completely flip the table on a government that rules over 80 different ethnic groups, a democracy might not be the most effective political structure or allow for the smoothest of transitions. Taking all of this together, 
The government's move last week to criminalize posting divisive or incendiary things on social media seems almost inevitable as Abiy and his party struggle to control all the erupting ethnic violence. It could just be a quick emergency action, like the brief internet shutdown that happened after the June coup attempt. Or it could be the first unavoidable step in a long series of unavoidable steps that walk Ethiopia further and further from democracy and back to authoritarianism. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel.